This is The Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Now, here's Jason Jones. Aloha, everybody, and welcome to The Jason Jones Show. I am your host, Jason Jones, broadcasting from our nation's capital, one of the most beautiful cities in the world, although it is still strange here, and it is our, this is the Jason Jones Show's special Father's Day episode, and so there is no better person on the planet Earth to join me for this show than the president of American Principles Project, Terry Schilling. He is a father, he is a son, he is a husband, and he runs an organization that fights for the interests of families. I've been in Washington, D.C. all week. My organization is to fight for vulnerable communities that don't have a voice. And in my mind, that's the child in the womb. That's the Nuba in the Nuba Mountains of Sudan or the Uyghur or the Kurds or the Assyrians or Chaldeans. But talking to Terry before we went on the air, it just dawned on me, the most vulnerable community in our nation is really the foundation of our civilization, the family, and until American Principles Project, there really hasn't been an organization to fight for their interests. Washington, D.C. is a city of squeaky wheels begging for grease. And if your wheel's not in the city, your wheel is not going to get any grease. That is the sad truth. Uh, Before we jump into the interview, this episode is being brought to you by Movie to Movement, promoting a culture of life, love, and beauty through the power of film. Go to movietomovement.com and check out all of our movies or go to wherever you watch movies, wherever you download movies and put in Divided Hearts of America and you will see our most recent film starring Benjamin Watson. This episode is also being brought to you by the Vulnerable People Project. Standing in solidarity with the vulnerable, go to thegreatcampaign.org. We need monthly donors And um, I've been so grateful to all the monthly donors this podcast has given to our organization. When you're a monthly donor, you join us in standing shoulder to shoulder with the most vulnerable communities in the world. And it is Father's Day. And I know a lot of you, a lot of you messed up. You made a big mistake. If you didn't get your father and or husband a gift, and you need to make up for that. And if you would have been timely, you could have just bought them a pillow at MyPillow.com with the code Jones. But because you're late, you need to get them the mattress topper, the pillow, and the sheets. If you do that, that'll make up for you being late. So go to MyPillow.com, use the code Jones, get your dad, your pops, your husband, your honey bun, the whole my get them the, the robe, the slippers, what... You are the man among men. If you're the guy that sleeps under Giza Dream sheets on top of a mattress topper with your head on a MyPillow, you wake up, you put on your MyPillow robe, put on your MyPillow slippers, you are the king of your castle. And with the code Jones, you get deep discounts on all of those products. Um, So yeah, that's that. That's me selling, selling pillows. But now let's get on with the show. Terry Schilling, welcome to the Jason Jones Show. Jason, thanks for having me. It's been a long time since Iowa. 
Yeah, tell okay, tell folks about that. Like, it seems like every guest I have on, I know, and you know, and they become very prominent. They become leaders, national leaders. I met you in Iowa, and you were a kid. A kid. I was twenty years old, and um, I had never worked on a presidential campaign before. I'd never worked on a presidential campaign before, and you were my first boss. You were the director, uh, I think, of grassroots operations for the Brownback campaign. Yes. And you gave me one of the most passionate pro-life calls to action. It was like a motivational speech for getting involved in politics to save unborn babies. I was ready to die for <laughs> the Brownback for President campaign because I thought it was like the only way we're going to overturn Roe is if Brownback is ele- Sam Sam Brownback, a senator from Kansas, is elected president of the United States. You had that impression of me, and it's always stuck. And so. For you to have me on your podcast, I just absolutely love it because I know that that feeling that I had in Iowa when you talked to me about what was at stake, it was, it's a feeling I haven't really felt before, before that moment. And I know that your listeners that listen to you, they feel that, that, that feeling too. And that's a motivated, uh, energized, ready to die for these super important causes, ready to run through brick walls feeling. And so I just, I know you're awesome. I think your audience is probably just as awesome, but that's because you fired them up. And so I'm really honored to be here. Uh, you've had a great impression on me and my family and I'm um, just really, really happy and lucky to be here. Well, let me tell you what I remember from the, the day we first met. So I was fired up because I looked at how many, in, you were from Steubenville High uh, Steubenville College, and there were, how many interns did we have from Steubenville? There was uh, probably about a, a dozen or so from Steubenville. There were total, there were like 50, 50. interns. We had like 50 interns, a dozen from Steubenville. I remember looking out at the room, I, I remember some of the things I said. I looked out at you and I remember thinking, and I, I think I said it, in this room there, there, there's probably a Supreme Court justice. In this room, there's probably a future president of the United States. In this room, there will be the leaders of the pro-family movement. And in this room, most of you aren't that those people. Most of you are going to go to live normal lives, and, and you'll show up and you'll vote. And then look around, because for many of you, your spouse is in this room. And look around, because for many of you, your best friends, people you will fight with till you're the last breath, are in this room. Look around. They're here. Do you remember me saying that? I totally remember you saying that. And I remember looking around the room and seeing this drop-dead, gorgeous redhead, super Irish, beautiful freckles, and thinking maybe that's... No, did you really? Did you? Totally. Yes, of course. Because you met your wife on the campaign, as many people did. I met my wife, Katie, uh, on that campaign uh, in 2007, right? Like 14 years ago. And... I remember having that. And, and you know what's funny is I just threw it out there. Like I fed head over heel. I fell head over heels for her. And I just started telling her like, hey, you and I are going to get married. And she started immediately dismissing it. Right. And but then eventually I knew I was making progress with all the flirtations and teasings and, you know, <laughs> making fun of her. Wait, uh, you guys were flirting when we were trying to run a campaign. This was uh, happening. You got, you know, those the, the, those lonely Iowa nights. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> lots of <laughs> not a lot to do, uh, but you know, I just I fell head over heels. I knew I was making progress because she finally stopped rejecting it. And she finally started saying, well, what's your plan? And I knew, like, oh, she's open to this. Well, let me say this. It's something else I remember about you. So when I looked at all of you, this is how I see myself when I saw everyone there. I am a train wreck, right? Like, I am the coach that, that's 
coaching the community college of kids that didn't get into a D1 school because of grades, but I know they're all going to the NFL, right? But um, they're all from good families, raised with the faith, never made a bad decision in their life. But then there was you. <laughs> you were a teen father. Yep, that's right. And so you were different to me. You were the one I identified with. I said, oh, okay, I like this young man. Okay, he's not like all these perfect Steubenville kids. I've matured since then, and I realize that not every young person from a Catholic family that goes to a Catholic school, his life has been a bed of roses. But at that time, that's really how I thought. Mm-hmm. And I, did, I lacked empathy and, and experience with people with different experiences. So you were, you were the guy that I really I, um, felt an affinity toward and, and identified with. And, um, but your wife comes from kind of a good family, established family, is that fair to say? Yeah, but look, there, she's from a working class Irish family in Boston, and okay. so her father, my my my, my father in law, is the youngest of eight kids, all raised in the Boston projects. They actually grew up yeah, in this because she carries herself like I thought she came from a pillar of society. When okay, pillars of society. I mean, she that's how dressed she herself. so well. Yeah, she was. She so, looks like a Laura Ashley catalog model. Exactly. No, that's exactly right. right? And I remember Red telling head, my mom, freckles. I told my mom, I said, "Mom, this this girl, she's from Boston, and she's like Jackie O, like a redhead yes, version of exactly. Jackie O." Yes. That's and right. uh, I'll never forget, you know, going to their house the first time and thinking, like, "Oh, thank goodness, they're working class. Like, they're not stuck up. They're not elites." So. Um, and they were the most welcoming, loving people I've, I had ever met. Um, but I, you know, so my father-in-law is the youngest of eight Boston, Irish Catholic family grew up in the project, same neighborhood as Malcolm X, same neighborhood. I'm friends with his daughter, Ilyasa. He, he gets a bad rap in a oh, lot of Oh, he's one of my heroes. By the way, I, one of the shirts I was going to wear today, I'm wearing God is Love in Hawaiian, but I have a Malcolm X shirt that I wear. He, he knew what he stood for and he, he, he went for it, but these kids, these Boston Irish kids were all born to an orphan father. So he didn't know who his mom was. Uh, they get married, but they, they're on his food assistance. They're on all these programs. The eldest went on to become a tenured professor at Boston College. Very successful. I believe he had 10 or 12 kids himself. The second, I, I don't know all the other breakers, but there's dentists in this family. There's laborers. There's like... They're super smart kids. And then one of them was a successful dentist. He then had, uh, I think, 10 kids. There's one of them, one of his eldest or his second eldest or his eldest kid went on to become like a billionaire, like develop some of the first stock trading software that America had ever seen. This is this is in the 80s and 90s, right? Wow. When the internet first came around. But these are poor Catholic working class people. But who it was ended the family up- structure that nurtured them and allowed these pillars of their community to grow. That's exactly right. They they didn't prioritize the material goods. They prioritized the development of their children's education, the development of their skills, and most importantly, their souls. And that was what made all of the difference. We don't, you know, the thing about the family is you don't need to be millionaires. You don't even need to be, you know, uh, well off or middle class. You can come from nothing and be, and have a huge impact on the world simply by having a strong functional family. It's that powerful of an institution. And that's, that's why I think when you start using this institution of the family with how powerful it is, to start making changes to our laws by getting involved in politics. I, the family 
is a political institution. It's the first political institution, really, with, you know, you have the two heads and you have the subjects and, you know, the, the, the citizens. And um, it's the most natural political institution, but we haven't been organizing that political institution in politics. And so... Sort of this neoliberalism dissolves all entities between the person and the, the state and the family has been dissolved. But, but when I, before I get to this, I want to keep it on you a little bit, and here's why. Um, you have a joy and an unaffectedness that's not normal in this city, right? It's not normal. You're unaffected. You're just, you're Terry Schilling. But I want to go back to, like, when I first met you, going to Steubenville is a teen parent. Were you insecure? Like, tell me about, like, did you have insecurities with your relationship to other students? Um, a little tell bit me of that. About that. A little bit of that. Um, the, the, the biggest thing for me, my mom was great. Uh, she really instilled... During that time when, you know, when you're in high school, right? Like you're super scared. Your girlfriend's pregnant. Yeah. You, do, you know how mean high school kids are and how bad it's going to be if anyone gets word. So you're just on pins and needles when you're in high school, uh, waiting for someone to find out through the rumor mill. And then your life is destroyed. But that, that, that first, you know, it's so stressful. But my mom really instilled prayerful discernment in me at, during that time. She got me going to adoration. She got me going to daily mass a few times a week. She got me praying the rosary and really asking God to guide me on what I was supposed to do. Um, and, you know, it's funny, my, um, the, 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 the mother of our beautiful daughter, Grace, at the time, we both went and met with a, a, a trusted priest and we're trying to discern what we were supposed to do. Cause there was just some issues about, you know, you're two teenage kids. You don't really know if marriage is right for you. And I, and look, I think a lot of people think like, Oh, you get pregnant and now you got to get married. No, you, you have to discern if that's the person you're supposed to get married to. And if that's the person you're supposed to get married to, then you do it. Um, and, and if it's not, then you figure out what's the best thing for the child. Because if you marry the wrong person, you know, God has a lot of different plans for a lot of different people. Everyone's unique. Um, and we met with this priest and we've spent a full day of adoration and prayer and just reflecting. And we decided to give our daughter up for adoption. And it was a very difficult position. And it was a, a decision that, um, you know, I still reflect on and I think, you know, that might have been the right decision, uh, but I'm really glad it didn't work out that way. Because, uh, you know, so we decided we found a family um, that, um, you know, they had two boys, but they had always wanted a girl and they weren't able to have kids for the last 15 years. So we got everything lined up and then Grace was born and the mom couldn't do it. Um, the, the mom couldn't uh, go through with the adoption and that was okay. And I remember uh, being, you know, a little perturbed by that. Cause you know, it's not the plan that we decided on. It's not what God told us to do, but I'm so glad it didn't work out that way. And, it, God. It's and how old were you? I was eight. I was 18 when uh, my girlfriend got pregnant in high school. I was a senior. And how old is your daughter now? She's 15. She's going to be 16 in October. Which is crazy to think about. She's already driving. Like she's driving me around. So what I like about your story is good kids from good families, good kids from good Catholic families. And I love your parents. And and I want to talk about your father too, who just recently passed, which is just striking to me because he was the most alive, vibrant man I ever met. And so I never saw him. 
you got cancer and it was pretty quick. Mm-hmm. And so um, you had a beautiful family. They owned a pizza place, like a great restaurant, right? And your dad was a member of Congress, became a member of Congress. I think the Brownback campaigns would politicize your dad, maybe? I don't know, or was it before then? No, the, the Brownback campaign was the first, was what made him start to consider actually getting engaged and involved in politics. Okay. He was always a conservative. He was, um, you know, always a Republican. I think he had voted in a few Democratic primaries, but he knew where his values were and he always voted. But the Brownback campaign was what opened his eyes to getting involved in politics. And I, when he made the decision to eventually run, it was actually the summer of 2008. I was interning for another great Catholic pro-life champion, Christopher Smith from uh, New Jersey. And we got my parent. They came out to visit me in D.C. And we got them a Capitol Hill tour. And as we were walking through the Senate office buildings... My dad's seeing all these people run in and out, and he's we go to the Capitol. He's seeing everything going. I'll never forget. He turned to me and he said, "I could do this. <laughs> I, I, I could. I could be a member of Congress or Senator. Like this doesn't seem that hard. You're just reading and analyzing things and talking to people. You. I could do this." I said, "Well, yeah, of course you could because." That's how the system was designed. It was designed for people like you to be in politics and be elected as an elected official, not these elitists who don't trust the American people. That is the premise of American. He's that's right. And so he just kept thinking about it and thinking about it. And it wasn't until Barack Obama got elected where, you know, you have a you have this charismatic black guy who, for all intents and purposes, instills a lot of hope in the American people. But when you peel back all of the rhetoric and the, the, the campaign mantras and you look at his agenda and his record on public policy, guy that voted present on the Born Alive Infant Protection Act, a bill that simply says that if a baby comes all the way out of the mother's womb during a, an abortion attempt, you have to provide medical care and you can't just kill the baby. He voted present for that. So we had, it was such a conflict in America, right? Because he presented that awesome American spirit of hope and, 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 and entrepreneurship and doing overcoming adversity. But at the same time, he was a pessimist and thought it was okay to kill babies, thought the mothers couldn't handle it. held it up in Illinois. It didn't get through the Illinois legislature until he was elected to Senate. That's exactly right. And... My dad was looking at that aspect of just how radically pro-abortion he is. And he called me, he's talking to me about these, like, dude, we got to save the babies. And he's like, and by the way, I'm kind of, kind of pissed. You know, he's talking about spreading the wealth around. And I know he's talking about people like me. He's like, Terry, you know, we haven't taken a vacation in, in probably 20 years. This guy wants to start taking more of our money. Like we've got to do something. So he says, I'm running against Phil Hare for Congress. And that name probably might sound familiar to some of your listeners, but um, I'll get to that in a second. But Phil Hare was, uh, you know, that district that my dad ran in was Democratic for the past 28 years. It went Democratic in 1982 and didn't become a Republican district until 2010. Um, but Phil Hare was this just curmudgeon pro-abortion Catholic uh, who spoke on both sides of the aisle or on both sides of the issue. But, you know, when it came time to vote, he was voting for taxpayer funding. He was voting for partial birth abortion, all of that. Um, and um, 
So my dad decided to run. I told him he was crazy, but he said, look, you're the only guy that I know that's actually been involved in politics and run campaigns and worked on them. I need you to run my campaign. <laughs> Excuse me. Sorry. I need some, uh, no. some water maybe. Um, but um, so he decides to run. I tell him he's crazy, but I still go out and do it. And it was tough. And I remember thinking about all the stuff that need to get done. Like, how do I get my dad on the ballot? How do we file the FEC reports? How do we do all of this stuff? It just seems so daunting and overwhelming. But as I discovered, as I walked through the process, it was at, our political system is actually pretty simple to figure out. Uh, the, every state has a state board of elections that set the rules for how to get on the ballot. They explain it very qu- clearly, all the rules that's out there. But I thought, you know, most families, when they look at the political system, it's, it seems very complicated. It seems daunting. It seems overwhelming. But it's not. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. And it's easy. And, and I think that we need to use more family, get more families involved and engaged in politics from that experience. Yeah, well, you're a pretty, yeah. It, I mean, it was that's not that long ago. I mean, 2008, the Brownback campaign wasn't that long ago. And look at what has happened since your family got involved. Your dad was a member of Congress. You are now the president of a very influential organization in Washington, D.C. And like you said, it seems so complicated, but it can't be. Look at AOC, okay? Look, she's there. Now, look, we all don't have Soros-funded machines to come pick us up, put us in the back seat, and drive us into Washington, but it's not that challenging. I felt the same way when I got involved in the movie business. You know, when people say, oh, you need to make this movie. I'm like, no, you need to make this movie. Well, I could never make a movie. Well, sure as heck you can. If you ran a pizza place, <laughs> if you could sure as heck make a movie. It's as hard and as simple as that. Nothing is, I say nothing, it's not rocket science. Making movies is not rocket science. Running for Congress isn't rocket science. I've come to find out everything that seems hard really isn't once you figure it out. That even rocket science probably isn't that rocket science. If I set out to like, send a <laughs> rocket right. to Mars, it'd be like, you know what? This isn't that challenging. It's just math, really. It's just you know, math. I never passed a math class in my life, but I'll <laughs> hire a guy that did, and we'll figure this out. Right. right? So, yeah, your family's done so much as a family. So here you were, a young kid, 18. You had a uh, um, teen pregnancy, became a father. Our culture would say, your dreams are over. Your high school girlfriend's dreams are over. Gong. That's not true. Um, your lives continue and they, you flourish. And here you are now, uh, America Principles Project, and you are launching this new campaign, really the first of its kind. And I just watched uh, the ad with you and your uh, beautiful Laura Ashley. That's your wife. When people see the ad, that is his real wife. Those are his real kids. That is not, don't tell, if that is your real house, I need to know. Just the outside of the house. So, so the outside we, is the house. Yeah, so everything inside. Our house is actually kind of, clu- not cluttered, but it's smaller. We well, have a lot of kids. We have a ton of kids, yeah. yeah. So we actually rented an Airbnb for all the inside shots, but everything outside. that that Good, because as a guy with a lot of kids, I'm like, if that's what the inside of their house looks like, we're failing. It, we, that was, that's was that been the one critique that I have. Uh, no, you know, but I like it. No, you know what? It, it is what it is, right? You can't. It's not. It's. It's a production, it's, right. but it's beautiful. It's powerful. And I said, These guys, this is going to be the chip and Joanna Gaines of the pro-family movement. So tell us about your new campaign. What motivated you to launch this new campaign and then how people can be involved? It's Father's Day. And I don't know if you're this, if, I don't know if this is how you see politics, but let me tell you how I see politics. When I was a little boy, my dad, my mom had me in high school when she was in high school. My dad floundered around, worked at factories, did what he could. 
Um, they were married at like 16. My, dad was, my mom was like 16, 17. They were married for six months. Then um, they got divorced. My dad literally worked in factories and on the railroad. Then he joined the army. Didn't see him for many years. My mom got remarried. My daydream as a child, I would daydream about being a father, about having a wife, about having children, about having a peaceful home with board games, a pull-up bar, a heavy bag, <laughs> books. I'd bring flowers home. The refrigerator would be filled with food. There'd be ice cream bars in the freezer. This is what I would daydream about. So then when I get involved in this teen pregnancy, it wasn't jarring to me. It was like, now I get to live what I've been dreaming my whole life. And then my first child is destroyed brutally through a third trimester abortion. So I felt like a horrible failure. Everything that animates my work, whether it's making a movie like Bella, which is obviously its connection to fatherhood and family, or my work in East Turkestan, which is thinking about fathers being separated from their children, or the drone war in Yemen, um, you know, fathers losing their children to drone strikes. Uh, everything I do, I see through the lens of being a father. And when I look at the work of American Principles Project in your new campaign, is that, is that what, how you see the world is just... It, that's exactly right. Everything about my life is about me as a father. And I think when I look at my generation, these younger kids that are 40 and under, I think they have it exactly backwards. They want to prioritize their careers and they put their careers first. They put their advanced degrees first. And then they say, well, once I get my career off the ground, once I get my, my master's in business, then I can get married. Then I can start having kids. That is, that is backwards. The whole point of having a career, having a job, getting a degree is so that you can better support your family. That's it. And when I go to work every day, and I'm really blessed, right? Because I have a job where not only do I get paid to provide and provide, and I'm able to provide resources for my kids and their food and their education and clothing, and all that. But I have a job where I'm make, trying to make the future better for my kids. Everything about what I do, whether it's my job or what I'm doing when I get home, it's about my kids and my wife. They're the best thing that ever happened to me. And, you know, you, you work in D.C. long enough and you realize that is very rare here. Most people prioritize their careers here. There's, there's, there's They're not, out every night late. It startles me. Drinking. I mean, Drink, this is yeah, the, out meetings in New York is the same way. And you're like, what, how could you, how do they weather this? If my, I know my family's 20 minute drive away or Metro drive away, I'm not going to have a drink with you. I'm sorry. Now, when I'm in this town, I work till six in the morning. I'm here to work. Mm -hmm. But if my family is a 20 minute drive away or a Metro drive, a Metro right away, I'm not going out for drinks with you. Right. No, that's exactly right. And one thing I want to point out, because we just talked about, you know, how in D.C. there's a lot of alcoholism. This is the most alcoholic part of the country. And it's just, if you think about it, there's so much stress, there's so few families. D.C. has the highest rates for alcoholism. But I look at what the family did for my dad. So my dad didn't have the best upbringing. Both of his parents worked full-time they both worked late night jobs. So the kids in his family basically raised themselves. So it was a, it was a little bit of like animal house. Um, my dad gets to his senior year in high school and he, his parents get divorced. And it really had a negative effect on him his entire life. 
my dad, but even before that, there was a lot of dysfunction. Like my, my dad would tell us like, yeah, I started smoking cigarettes at around nine. He's like, you know, this is back in the age where all I had to do was come up with a handwritten note that was half decently written and give it to the store clerk for a pack of, you know, my stepdad would write me notes in crayon. <laughs> he was an alcoholic, the best man ever, but he would, couldn't find any thing to write on. He would give me a note in crayon. It'd be 9.30 p.m. I'd be seven years old walking half a mile to the Shell station. I would hand them a, an authentic note written in crayon, one of our crayon, and they would hand me a pack of cigarettes. It was just a different era. <laughs> well, well, our paint wasn't lead, so it, was, it really yeah. didn't matter. Smoke, it'll help dilute the lead in your blood. So, so he, he starts smoking cigs at nine, starts smoking weed at 12, has been drinking this whole time. And so his parents get divorced a senior in high school and he starts to rebel. He starts having parties at his house all the time. He actually developed the nickname CBS, Cool Bobby Schilling, because he threw the best parties. He was homecoming king. So like he lived it up. He really loved interacting with people. He was a total extrovert. Um, but then a few years later, um, he tried community college out for like, a semester and it just wasn't for him. So he went into the workforce. He was a, he actually spent 14 years in unions. Uh, he worked at a corrugated box factory, was a union steward there, then went on to uh, work in the financial services industry for Prudential um, and uh, was part of the UFCW, United Food and Commercial Workers Union. And um, so we had that working class background, but he meets my mom when he's 21 and um, they fell in love. They end up getting engaged but um, they almost broke up um, on Halloween. And I found this out. My mom, uh, two Halloweens ago, my mom sends me a text message, tells me this long, drawn-out story about how she and my dad got into a major fight on Halloween in 1985. And I'm like, where is this going? And she's going into the details. Like, he rolled up in his Mustang and was burning out, and he slammed the car door because he saw me flirting with another guy. And it was so embarrassing for him because when he slammed the car door, the window shattered. And it really... I would be embarrassed. I'd be like, yeah. <laughs> so they get into a big fight. The other guy scurries off, and they fight, but then they end up making out. And she goes, and Terry, nine months later, you were born. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, my God. Hey, Ma. She said, happy conception day. You should, you should have shared that. You should, I don't know if you should have shared that story. Oh, it's beautiful. It's I good. don't know. I don't know. We need more, we need more rea reality. No, that is true. That's true. Um, and uh, so then they, they end up getting engaged, getting married. Um, I, you know, I was obviously at the wedding. I don't remember it. I was still in the womb, but... Um, heard it was great um so but my dad still has these underlying issues right of alcoholism and he actually developed a serious drug addiction he he wasn't just addicted to like you know the the white collar drugs he was addicted to like the the west end of rock island drugs like he goes he was hooked on crack cocaine and um my mom kept trying to get him in line trying to get him in line they end up having three kids she gets pregnant with number four and it just hit like fever pitch. And I don't know why, but he really got so bad that year when she was pregnant before. Probably, maybe it was due to like the stress of having your fourth kid in like six years, right? So uh, my mom actually files for divorce because she just can't take it anymore. He's out all night doing drugs, drinking, never around, doesn't know if he's screwing around, you know, all that. Files for divorce and um, he just kind of recedes. And... My mom got a call, 
And this goes back to family too, right? Like, like you how, know, how old are you now? I this is 1993, so I'm seven. Okay. Um, I'm still a little kid. Do you remember it? You remember seeing your dad vanishing or? I remember my dad being out for like a few weeks, um, very vaguely. And I, but I do remember being even littler and my mom putting us in the car really late at night, going around looking at the, looking for him at the different bars. And so anyway, my, my mom files for divorce, doesn't really hear anything from my dad she gets a call from his mother, her mother-in-law. And my grandma, Pat, says to my mom, are you planning on divorcing my son? Real confrontational. Because she, in her heart, she does not want the same outcome for her grandkids that her kids had to go through. Right. And my mom says, I don't know what to do, Pat. I don't want to divorce him. But he, he's not fighting me. He hasn't told me that he doesn't want me to divorce him and leave him. So I don't know what to do. He's not cleaning up. He, he doesn't want to stay married. He doesn't want to be married to me. And my grandma Pat said, I'll take care of it. And got off the phone. Family. Yeah. yeah family. Roadblocks. This is why it's so important. Like, if your grandmother wasn't there, your life would be a lot different. And so your children's different. life would be a lot different. Um, and, and you know what? To be honest. Maybe if they hadn't gotten divorced and she didn't have that pain from that, maybe you don't know how all this stuff affects things, you know? That's right. But um, my grandma Pat goes to my dad and says, I never would have divorced your father if he asked me not to. If you think about that, that is such a powerful statement. And that changed my dad for the rest of his life. He called my mom immediately said, I don't want you to divorce me. Let's work this out. I'll get clean. I'll stop drinking. You know, the, the, back in the eighties and nineties and, and, and just, you know, families of alcoholics, we, we come from a long line of alcoholics. Um, being an alcoholic and drinking is just what you do. And people didn't know what crack was. I mean, I remember uh, in that same year, it was 85 when your dad started crack it was 84, 85. There was a liquor store in our neighborhood called Nate's Liquors in Harvey. And you could be 14. I'd go in my Letterman's jacket and buy peppermint schnapps. <laughs> really. And I walked out there, and uh, I had never heard of crack, but I had never smoked a cigarette. Actually, to this day, I've never smoked a cigarette. But if I smoked pot, that day I would have smoked crack because this is what happened. Uh, this guy said, hey, y'all, you want some rock? And I, I, I said, what's that? He goes, man, it's just like weed. It's awesome, but it's like weed, but it's awesome. It's better. And I'm like, no, nah, I don't smoke weed. I'm just here to get some schnapps because we're kids. We would buy peppermint schnapps, right? And then, and then it unfolded what is rock, crack, crack cocaine. People didn't know. I have friends in the entertainment business that in the 70s, they, I mean, they thought cocaine was kind of good for you. <laughs> they were like, I we didn't think it was that bad, you know? Um, and so people were ambushed. Yes. They were ambushed by these drugs. And by the time they realized what was going on, the hooks were deep. Well, and the, the likelihood of people that are addicted to crack getting clean, it's the rates of failure are through the roof. Um, and he overcame all that. And obviously God was involved in this, right? Like he, and he would say that God was involved in this. But at the end of the day, it was our family that got him to open his eyes and return back to God. It was... It was his empathy of not wanting his four boys 
to go through what he went through as a kid. And he wanted to stop the cycle of dysfunction. That was such an important moment. It was the inflection point of his life where he decided that he was no longer going to be cool Bobby Schilling first. He was still cool. He was going to be Bobby Schilling, son of God. And he was going to dedicate his life. Consciously, to his, that's what he said to himself. I don't know if he ever said that, but that's that's how I that's how that's I, your interpretation. That's what happened. It. Yeah. And so here's the really cool thing, right? My mom was pregnant with number four. They get divorced. Guess what? Done. Schilling family done. Four boys. That's it. My parents. Your dad would have died. He would have died. Or overdosed. Died. Your your mom would have probably never been married, or the man would have. You know, it's generally pretty hard. Well, but think about it because he had he had advanced cancer. So even even if he didn't die of a drug overdose, overdose, when they got the cancer, when the diagnosis with him, he was stage four. It was terminal. He would have died alone. Yeah. And I'll, I'll get to that point in a second. But my parents went on to have six more kids. <laughs> six from, more kids after that. Can I ask, were you guys going to mass? During the crack addiction and all of that? Yeah, my mom was devout. She Would your dad go with you? Yeah, he would go with us. He never, uh, he, he understood the importance of going to church. But, you know, when you develop addictions, you start. No, but there's a grace that still comes from that. And that's why it's beautiful. True. No, that's exactly right. Um, so they end up having six more kids. Number five was the first girl. That's special in and of itself, right, for a family. She has four kids herself. You know, like what I tell people, what's so amazing about children and family and having babies is that those babies you have are going to be someone's spouse. They're going to be someone's best friend. They're going to be someone's teacher, someone's boss, someone's worker who puts something together. They're going, these kids and these people impact the world in immeasurable ways. And the devil knows that, right? And that's, that's why he... Loves abortion. If you erase a child, you erase a line. Yeah, it's it's absolutely. If you'd erased Genghis Khan, one fourth of the world would be gone. <laughs> True story. But that's right. One guy, one fourth of the world, I, I'm told, is descended from Genghis Khan. So that and, and so, when did you come to understand all of that? That what your family was going through? Did they shelter you from it? Or no? I you know it's funny. Um, I always knew about it. They didn't shelter it from me. Um, I I was actually like, because he there were a few moments where he relapsed, right? And you know, anytime you're trying to get, well, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things I hate are the faux conversion stories. Oh my gosh! Like, you know, I found Jesus and everything was great. No, you cheated on your wife a few more times, didn't you? Did some drugs. Yep. You your business failed. Like, yeah. We relapse. These are battles to the end. Exactly. They're exactly. To the end. And it can go either way haunted. any day if you give in. And, and here, look, fighting. I was looking at you guys back in Iowa thinking I'm with a bunch of like Puritans, you know, like everyone here is from perfect families would have never imagined. And I'm sure that every one of those interns had a story. I'm sure. To yeah. me, they were all raised by Scott and Kimberly Hahn, you know, <laughs> and a nice suburban home. And they went to adoration mass and they only committed venal sins in that family. <laughs> there were no drug addictions. That's the kind of how naive I, I think a lot of converts, we have that. I think that's right. And we got to get over that. Yeah. You yeah. Gotta, we got to recognize the world is a hard place. Very hard. And it's hard for those of us in the church, out of the church, straddling the church. <laughs> it's just a tough place. Um, so, you know, he... He changes his life there. And 
he ends up, this is what's really cool about uh, people with addictions or addictive personalities is that those are the people that end up like really doing big things because they're always looking for some other challenge. They're looking to keep busy. They, they, they're just looking, looking, looking and working, working, working. So my dad uh, was a successful insurance agent at the time, was making a ton of money. And he sees his brother, his little brother, Billy, start a really successful pizza restaurant. He sees how much money he's bringing in. My dad thinks to himself, oh, I can just open up a pizza place and get under management and then make even more. And then we can open and get get another pizza place. So he does that. But what happens is the managers he hired start stealing from him and he starts to end up, lo- he starts to end up losing money. So he leaves the insurance industry and just jumps head first into the pizza business and got all of us there working. I mean, I, as a 10 year old, I'm there work, you know, cleaning dishes and sweeping the floors and doing all that. He, but he made all of us work at those, at the, the pizza place. Um, and you fast forward to today, he had, he, we're opening up our fourth pizza store. And it's all, it, well, here's something else that's cool. By the way, I, I was, I met a flight attendant from your town. Do you remember this story? M- Moline? Yeah, remember, no, I texted you if you knew her. She knew your family. She was friends with your family. She was a oh, flight attendant. Oh, yes, yes, yes. No, I know exactly who you're talking about. She said about. she's from Moline. I'm like, hey, do you know, and, and then I, I, said, I forget the name of the pizza place. She said the name of the pizza place. She goes, oh, I'm friends with it's my friends. Those are my family friends. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It, so the pizza place is called St. Giuseppe's that's Heavenly right. Pizza. How did I forget that? Which is Joseph. One of the biggest Italian. fans of the show is Giuseppe Locatelli from uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. <laughs> so shout out to Giuseppe. But, but my parents made a real dedication to St. Joseph because he was the, the, the foster father of Jesus. Obviously the model of fatherhood, model for workers. And it, it impacted our, all of our lives. Like they, they, my dad really wanted to strive to be St. Joseph for us. And you know, you go, you fast forward all the way. My dad gets elected to Congress. He has ten, six more kids, a total of 10. This year, we're going to have 17 grandkids. Um, he go, then goes on to start doing foreign business, you know, in China and in India, like all over the place, right? And he has this amazing life, opens up his fourth pizza place, gets diagnosed with stage four terminal cancer in his stomach and colon last April. And it, at first it had a real chilling effect. You know, when you go through this stuff, you don't real, like you just, you hear about people getting cancer and you just think like, Oh, that's so bad. It's so terrible. But then you, your dad gets cancer at 56 and you're like, what the hell? You start to, you start to kind of get angry at God. Like what? Like we went through all of this. You got clean from from drugs. Like we went through all the struggle, and you're taking him from us at the height of his life. At the height, we're of still his- in act. Though I think of film, we're still in act two. We're still in act two. We're still in act two. We're not to act three yet. Yeah, Hold on. slow down. And I I remember being really mad, but then, and you know, it's funny because he wanted to protect us from from all of it, and he uh, when I called him, you know, we heard start hearing these rumors. Like my mom's texting me, like, "Hey, uh, you're." things are really bad with your dad. Um, we think he has cancer. We don't know all the details, but it's really not good. And so I remember calling him. He's in the hospital. I'm like, dad, what, what's going on? He's like, Oh, it's fine, man. Like it's treatable that, you know, their doctors are really optimistic. And I'm like, Oh, Oh, I kind of freaked out about nothing. I talked to my mom. She's like, no, Terry, like, I don't know if he's just not hearing the doctors or if he's just doesn't want you to be afraid or what, but 
it's really bad. It's stage four, it's spread. And sorry. Um, the thing is, is like, even once he came to telling us the truth, um, one, he never told us how bad it actually was. He, he said, you know, they gave him two to three months uh, last April. And he told us, he goes, look, the doctors tell me it could be a year. And so I'm like, okay, I got a year with him, you know? And, and I find out after, you know, he did end up, end up living another year. And I remember finding out, like, my mom told me, like, no, he, they gave him two to three months. Like, he could have been gone very quickly. I, he, he always had this confidence. And it was like a grace, a special blessing from God to where I remember being in the hospital with him when he first got diagnosed and they're doing an operation. You know, like colon can he had a weird form of colon cancer where it was, the whole reason he went in to get checked out was because his digestive system wasn't working. He was throwing up food. He wasn't able to process it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he had to get these surgeries so that he could at least start eating food again and, um, and getting some nutrients in his body. So we're in the hospital. He's waiting for his next big surgery. And um, doctor comes in and says, all right, before the surgery, you got to sign all this paperwork. And by the way, uh, what do you want to do about a DNR? Do not resuscitate. And uh, my dad said, you know, I, I've thought a lot about it. And, um, you know, I'm okay. You know, we, we can do the DNR. Uh, you know, if God wants to take me, it's in his hands and I'm okay with it. And my mom and I just looked at each other like, what? <laughs> like, this is the first we're hearing that you want a DNR. Like, you got 10 kids. Maybe this is a conversation we should have before you just sign a DNR. And he said, oh, no, you guys don't understand. God's been very good to Bobby Schilling. And I've lived the life of two men. And I'm okay. And you guys are going to be okay. You got 10 kids. You, you know, everything's going to be fine. Just trust in God and everything's going to be fine. But I don't want my life artificially prolonged. I don't, it's okay. I don't want to be in pain, but I also like, if they got me on respirators, I don't, I don't want to be artificially kept alive. I want to go meet Jesus. I want to just get, I don't want you guys to suffer any more than you have to. And, and it hit me like he really is at peace. Like he really, he's in a state of grace. Like, he want, he was okay with going to meet God and that confidence that he showed throughout the entire treatment was incredible and he um something that really stung and I'm still not quite over it is uh you know the treatment started going really well um, as you're getting chemo and you're getting radiation treatments, they're monitoring the amount of cancer cells that you have in your, in your blood. And when he first got his, uh, chemo, um, his body kind of like had a weird reaction. His, his cancer levels went up to like over 500, which is like really bad. But then he started getting treatments and then it would, it dropped over the next four or five treatments. It dropped from over 500 to like last Christmas, right? Four months before he died last Christmas, it was at like 67. And the, I went to the doctor's appointment with him and the doctor said, you know, we've never seen something like this. And what I'm still not quite over with, and I'm, you know, I'm not mad at God or anything. I thought it was kind of cruel is here's a guy that had overcome a lot of stuff, overcome a drug addiction, uh, overcame a failing marriage, ran for Congress, won. Like he, f- he pulled off all of these incredible, miraculous feats. And 
he starts to see these pro this progress uh, in his cancer treatments where it's like, oh my God, am I going to be healed? Am I going to, am I going to, am I going to pull this out? So your dad thought might, did oh, you Oh, he think totally this? thought. No, I mean, yeah. I had kind of just, you know, left it up to God. I, I was praying for a miracle the whole time and I, I knew it was possible, but I just, every time I was praying, I was just like, just do the best thing for our family. And, um, you know, there was the, the moment when we all kind of knew that it was over and his fight was the numbers started going back up and he got to, he was in line for this experimental treatment and they ended up denying him it because it, he just wasn't a good candidate. And he, and he wasn't to be fair. Like we, we aren't mad that he didn't get the experimental treatment because he wasn't the right guy for it. But I just felt at that moment, like, Oh, you, you totally misled him. God. You know, like, he thought he was going to pull off a miracle because you, you know, you got him through all this other stuff and you didn't. And, but then I, I think just, that's where we as Catholics have to, and as Christians generally, there's God's permissive will and active will. And those numbers were probably just science, the doctors and your dad's serenity and peace. And it wasn't God's active will. Like God was, you know, taking you on a roller coaster ride. We have to acknowledge that God permits the causes of sin and original sin and actual sin that cascade to us down centuries in the history of the human family. And, and that, you know, that's what, you know, that when it's, when it's someone else, I can look and say, well, this isn't God's active will, but when it's you, you're like, God, you could, yeah, you could will a miracle here and you do it. Yep. Why not now? Right. When we see the neighbor girl die of leukemia, we don't throw a fit. Right. But when it's our daughter, we like yell, but God, yeah. why not? You know, it's, it's, that's the great, I study every book I can on the problem of pain, any book ever written on the theology of the problem of human suffering and pain, because I think that's what will shake my faith. Something happened to my child. Yes. And so I want to be prepared and I already worked myself through it. I accept it when it happens to other people's children, mm -hmm. you know, and it's, but it is hard, right? It's, it's it really forces hard. you to ponder the whole economy of the cosmos and god and man and our relationship to god but here's where it gets beautiful okay my dad died on april 6th he had last rites and he it's funny because you he started like the last two days there was a huge shift in his ability to walk his ability to get up and down is you know it was just so he has last rites. He has Holy Communion. He has uh, what's called an apostolic pardon, which basically means like as long as you don't make any deliberate mortal sins or anything, you're going to heaven. And um, um, it starts to get bad, and it's clear that he's taken his last, you know, he's in his last moments. And all 10 kids, by the way, are, are home. And... We're all praying a divine mercy chaplet. And we finish that and we all just start thanking God out loud for him. And I don't know, Jason, if you've ever been around someone when they're taking their last breaths, but it's 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 an experience. It's it's when someone's dying, you know what it's like to be in the room when a baby's born. It's very similar to that, except the opposite. Um, it's a sacred moment. It's quiet. You can 
at least in this situation, we felt the Holy Spirit and there was a sense of calm and peace. But we finished the Divine Mercy Chaplet and we all just start thanking God out loud for my dad. So as he's taking his last breaths, he just had communion. He just had last rites. He, we just finished praying a Divine Mercy Chaplet. The last things he's hearing as he dies are his children thanking God for him. And, you know, as I'm writing the eulogy for his funeral, it hit me like we dedicated, I, I have a little prayer card that I keep in my wallet uh, from Father Arnie Panula's uh, funeral from the CIC. And it's, um, it's a prayer to St. Joseph, the patron saint of a happy death. And it hit me. A family was dedicated to St. Joseph. And St. Joseph and God granted my dad the grace of a happy death. You know, the teaching is simple. It's St. Joseph was the first person to die in the arms of Jesus and our Blessed Mother. And like I tell people, like my dad died surrounded by all 10 of his kids, praying with him and thanking God out loud for him. That's not St. Joseph's happy death, but that's as close as you're going to get. No, I mean, as a father, as you imagine, there's no more beautiful way to die. None and imagine nothing more imaginable. This is the best. But you, you think like there's there's all these different options that they could there's all these different routes they could have taken, right? Like he could have not gotten clean. He could have still got divorced. He could have, you know, developed an affair. He could have uh, you know, had the restaurants fail, stopped taking care of them. He could have stopped having children. Right? Like as fathers, I think it gets discounted like our role in the family. We're the fun ones. I know my wife's going to hate me saying that, but I think she would admit that. Everyone, let's just acknowledge that we're the fun ones. We're the fun ones, but we're the ones driving the procreation. We get to play good cop. Yes, exactly. Or really bad bad cop. Yeah, yeah. We're either like the good cop or the really bad cop. (laughs) 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 But, you know, we're we're, the dads in the family. If we want more kids, there will probably be a few more kids. Yeah. But if the dad doesn't want any more kids, there's not going to be any more kids. Because, like, you know, women are women compliment men, right? Like, especially when you're younger in your marriage, like, your sex drive is just, like, through the ceiling. So you're just, you know, at least with me, I'm, I want to – I have five kids Stop now. Stop bragging. I, I want five more, you <laughs> right, know? Right, yeah. And um, – but your wife, your spouse uh, is the, the throttle, you know, like she's the she's the restrictor plate. Like, she's like homeschooling, laundry, yeah. dishes. She's <laughs> tired, right? Yeah. And so, but if we're pushing that along, and so my dad could have said, like, hey, Christy, uh, we just had number five. Like, that's good. But he didn't say that. They had a very simple mentality. And I tell everyone that you need to have this mentality when it comes to having kids and having a family. We're going to have as many kids as God gives us. If it's one, we'll take it. If it's zero, we'll take it. If it's 100, we'll take it. But God is in charge of when we live and when we die. And we're going to let him make those decisions in our lives. And because they had that mentality of God being in charge of new babies, they had 10 kids. My mom, even though she lost her husband at 57, has 10 kids to help her out financially. 10 kids to help her walk through this problem. 10 kids to help keep the house up. 10 kids to, to help with anything she needs. 
10 helping hands. People under underappreciate the value of children in large families. They, you know, children in, in family size, it used to be, oh, you have 10 kids. Oh my gosh, you are wealthy. You are prosperous. You have a This ton is of why helpers. I like going to Africa the minute in the Middle East. When I, I judge a culture by their response to the question, how many kids do you have? And if they smile and say, you're rich, brother. <laughs> you're African. Are you from Africa? You were like one of us. I'm like, this is my culture. If they like look like they sucked on a prune and go, I'm in the wrong suburb. I got to go. Yeah, I got to yeah. go to the wrong affluent suburb. I got to go. So, yeah, no, you were rich. Well, you had this experience. I remember being a teen dad walking with my kids and people looking at me with my child with pity in their eyes. Do you remember that look? Oh, I, I get that now because I've got five, right? And right. When we go to a, in a restaurant or whatever, <laughs> people are like, oh, gosh. Like, you know, they're, you get the dirty looks. You get the sympathy looks. Yeah, like, oh, this poor soul. And you're like, are you serious? <laughs> yeah. You're pitying me. <laughs> I'm having a blast. You lunatic. Yeah. Like, you should envy me all right you should right. be addled with envy right yeah the the, the 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 it's like what makes us happy we run from what you know we're told to flee what brings us joy and that's the that's the sorrow so that's that i always look like i think of everything in a, as a movie so whenever you see somebody driven you knew they you know they experienced some profound act in the you know we in act one is that inciting incident the call to adventure and so your family had these inciting incidents that really taught you after the Brownback campaign, you could have went in many different directions in politics or in the nonprofit world, but you were driven to protect in the family, which by the way, isn't just mom, dad, kids, it's mom, dad, kids, aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews. So even if you're, you never have children, I, I get so upset when people are like, Oh, I never had a family. Really? How was that? Were you shot here from like, Created a lab. Krypton? Yeah, like, are you Kalel? No, you have a family. You're an aunt, you're an uncle, you're a cousin, you're a niece, you're a nephew. Plug into your family. Live in your family. Thrive in your family. You know, this is and this is what drives you. Exactly. Um, and I didn't, I you know, I'm the eldest of 10. I have five of my own. And we kind of developed this later in, you know, just the last few years, this concept of being the, NRA for families. And what we mean by that is an organization that's organizing families in politics to protect and save the American family. And it hit me just the past few days with this big family launch, our membership program launch, is I'm the perfect guy for this. <laughs> right. It's like God's been preparing me. Like, not only am I the eldest of 10 kids and did I experience what I did with my dad and how the family was what brought him back to God and saved his soul uh, and had an impact on all of us, but the family is how America will end up being saved if it does get saved. So this is, and, and you know, you look at the, uh, the, the Fatima prophecies and our Lady of Fatima told those three little kids that the last battle will be over the family. So for people who aren't Catholic, let's let's weird them out. Tell them about Fatima. Oh, Fatima is incredible. So there were these three little poor kids in Fatima, Portugal, and they're literally farmer kids. Um, and they're out, you know, tending sheep and playing. And all of a sudden, the Blessed Mother. Well, they were they were praying the rosary, but they were shortchanging it. 
Oh, that's their right. moms would go pray the rosary, and so they wouldn't say the whole Hail Mary, right? They would like they like started editing prayers to get through it quickly. What kids do? So maybe right? if I start editing my prayers, Our Lady will appear to me. Okay, so so Our Lady appears to these three kids, and she appears to them uh, through a series of of, of months and weeks, um, and reveals things to them about what's about to transpire over the world, and. She predicts great famines. She predicts great wars, and you know predicts a miracle that was documented in newspapers and the sun dancing in that's the sky right. and the rain and the and it was actually communist documented. party newspapers wrote about that was weird. What just happened? Well, and that's one thing that I think I don't think a lot of people appreciate is that this is during a time when the communists were besieging everything. I mean, there are communist revolutions all over, and they are persecuting the practicing Christians in the mm-hmm. world. And so these little kids. As they are today in China, where one of our bishops was just arrested and sent off to a gulag to be cut, to be. We need to keep him in our Tortured prayers. with his seminarians and priests, yes. Um, so they, Mary makes a series of predictions. These kids aren't believed. They actually are told that they're seeing the devil. And so they, they set up a big event and they invite everyone out and they have journalists there, atheist journalists. They're wanting to prove this wrong. They, and it starts raining and pouring and then all of a sudden, the sun comes out, starts dancing around the sky. And this is seen by hundreds of people. Thousands, uh, yeah, thousands. Th- thousands of people, I'm sorry. Thousands of people. And it's documented by people that aren't on our team, right? Yeah. Like people that don't like Christians. These are communist journalists who want to disprove all of this. And they document it all. And the sun shone so hot that day that it dried up all the rain that had just been pouring down like crazy. Um, and so in one of these prophecies from our lady in Fatima she predicted that the world was going to go totally nuts and that everything was going to fall all of our institutions were going to fall but the last battle that we were going to go through was the family and so I view where where I am right now is as you know as a big challenge um you know if it really is the family as the last uh, major attack. We, I mean, it's not, it's not, it, it can't be any clearer that the family is so much, it's been destroyed, at least here in America. Um, I'm not really a global person, so I don't, I don't know what the state of the family is the rest of the world. But in America, you have marriage, we don't even have a divorce problem anymore. We have a marriage problem. We, no, yeah. no one's getting married. And we, even when they do I just get read married. It, I, I just, do you know this guy, Kevin Samuels? I don't. Oh, he's this YouTuber. It's really interesting. I, I want to have him on the show because he's very controversial, but I think he's actually very loving. And he gives dating advice to black women, and he, and he can be seen as very mean. But I think he's driven by love because he tells hard truths in a, in a very, you know, he's very interesting, very entertaining guy. But he had said, well, only one in five black women will get married right now. And, you know, for I think for many millennials, most, maybe marriage is not in the cards. All of us, I think the one thing we all share in common, all of us are from families that have been decimated. Mm-hmm. And all of us have not been formed to be good fathers and mothers. And all of us are tripping on our face constantly, right? I mean, I am. I am. If it wasn't for my wife, we would have been divorced 20 times over. You know, I, early on in our marriage, she said to me, no matter what you do, I'm never granting you a divorce. And my mother was divorced a lot, <laughs> you know, <laughs> And to me, marriage was not even forever. In fact, I knew one day I will bring shame and scan. It's like I was an atheist pro-lifer. I, I could do whatever I want, and it brings no embarrassment to anyone because that was part of my brand. I'm the guy, yeah. that guy. When I became a Catholic, I'm like, oh, no, now I'm accountable for my actions. Well, and then when I got, I didn't want to get married because I knew it would lead, I would inevitably get divorced. Divor- marriage wasn't forever. 
And my wife, just me relentlessly trying to sabotage our marriage early on, she said, you know, I'm never going to divorce you. Ever. <laughs> so, and that gave me such peace. Yep. But I think that's all of us, right? Did you, did you ever, well, your parents never got divorced. Have you felt like, what fears have you had as a father? My fears have always been not being able to provide for my kids or, or having their innocence stolen from them. Right. Like, you know, my, the first time as a kid that I ever saw like porn, porn, like I'm not talking just like boobs and butts. I was 11 years old, you know, and you think about, I hadn't even hit puberty at that point. That's startling to me. But that is, first of all, that was my generation. I wasn't alone. A lot of kids. Yeah, when were, I was 11, all I had was a Sears catalog, my friend. Yeah, no, I know. It's it, it's really bad. But you fast forward to today, any kid with a smartphone or a tablet, none of these porn sites have age verification or age restrictions. None of them. Let me tell you how bad it is. If you have kids listening, uh, press pause. I'm going to share a horrible story with you. So, again, if you have kids listening, press pause. You might know about this, Terry. A uh, young woman, Tiana, who works for me, I'd asked her, you know, when the first time she saw porn, she's like, I don't think I saw porn until I was in the, a freshman. I'm like, well, that's amazing. You know, you went to public school. She goes, no, but we saw something worse all the time in middle school. Like, well, what possibly could be worse than porn? Again, if you have children listening, press pause. There was some app or some site that children could go to to watch grown men masturbate. Have you heard of this? It's called... And don't even say it. I don't even want to yeah, give it. Yeah, um, But people, she, she said, oh, no, in middle school, that's what everyone would watch on their phone in recess. Kids in middle school. Now, I guarantee you no one listening to this has even heard of this. I never heard of this. Have you heard of this? And, you, you know what it's called. You even said you know what it's called. Yeah, no, I had heard of it. it so it was taken over by those guys, but the whole, I mean, like it was probably invented for this purpose, but like what kids would do is it would connect you. You'd hit refresh and it would connect you with a new, totally random person. Adult. Uh, adult. Well, and there were a lot of kids on there kids. though too. There were a lot of little kids, but on kids there. would be watching adults masturbate. Yep. Yep. In the middle school yard. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's, it's, it's horrifying. And, and the thing is, is like in my generation, I think, I don't know, how, you would never be able to get an actual number on this. But think about for my generation and this, this current generation, how many kids lose their virginity to themselves and not, their, and not another person, right? Yeah. Not even their future spouse. So the ideal is you lose your virginity to your future spouse. And one thing I just want to say, I, this big family membership program that we're launching, this NRA for families, it's going to be raw. It's going to Let, be Let's tell people right now, first of all, um, there's a code Jones cause you have uh, you're going to give people a discount. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, 10% off, uh, with the, the promo code Jones. Is it tax deductible? This is a C4. Oh, awesome. That's even better. I'm glad this is a C4. So there is no tax deduction, no tax deduction, but you become a member. Yep. You become a member and you're going to get access. We're producing a groundbreaking report called threats to the American family. Okay. We're only providing that to what's our the website. It's save the family.app. So save the family.app is going to be your go-to political action. It's a PAC or C4. It's, both. it's a, it's a C4, but we, we do have a political, or, or, I'm sorry, you a super PAC. PAC. Okay. We already have it and we're going to use that in the midterms. But right now we're just asking people to join. Okay. So one more time. Save the family.app. I'm going to join this. Save the family.app. You become a member with the code Jones. 
whatever whatever amount you can get a higher membership. Yeah, we asked people, you know, with a with a with a donation of 25 bucks, you get access to this uh, threats to the American family report. We're going to make sure that you know all the major threats to your family and what to be looking out for. Who the bad guys are, who the bad elected officials are, who the bad companies are that you should not be supporting. All of the bad thing, this critical race, we're going to let you know about all the threats to your family, and no one else is going to have it besides our members. Um, on and all the people <laughs> pushing this crap, critical race theory, LGBT ideology, these are broken people going on to break things. Exactly. These are people from broken families who are looking for identity, yep. who are looking for community, and they're shattering things. They're just out of control, but they're victims of the broken family. Right. They're the broken people who are breaking things, but you're there to say, no, no, we're going to defend the family. Well, I've noticed that, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, right? On their website, they said explicitly that part of their goals was to disrupt the nuclear family. And you ask, like, what type of crazy person would want to destroy the family? By the way, the black community... Like Kevin Samuel said, only one in five black women today are going to get married. More than that are going to have children. Do we think that the patriarchy is the problem in the black, that the overbearing father in the home no. is the problem? I mean, this is utterly, it's absolutely the lack of insane. Yeah, there's the biggest, um, uh, my friend, Bobby Greenberry, really smart guy. He said, you know, there's the biggest privilege in America is two-parent privilege. Two-parent privilege. That's the privilege you want to give your children. Yep, that's exactly right. Um, so we're going to... Yeah, the other thing, and this is really cool, and we should have you on uh, at one of these, but we're hosting a series of family meetings. And we're going to hold at least one a month, but probably more than that. It's really just going to be depending on what the urgency is and what the issues are coming up. But we're inviting key conservative leaders, key elected officials. We have our first family meeting coming up this next Monday with Senator Tom Cotton. So not this next Monday, but tomorrow, uh, the 21st of June. And um, our members are going to be first in the queue for asking questions, helping guide us on the direction of these conversations, um, but also telling us who they want to hear from next. So we're going to be, this is going to be a member-driven organization. I'll get you some Hollywood stars that I think that, that want to speak out and do something that maybe some of my issues are too edgy, but but this would be something right up their alley. Well, and I and I want to tell you, I'm not opposed to having controversy. I'm not opposed to having offensive people. I'm not opposed even to having people that we disagree with on. I Mm-mm. think there's a lot you can learn from civil debates and discussions and even uncivil debates a lot of times. You know, I think that it's important though that we not that we tell the truth. And that we we talk about the facts and what's actually going on. I think that there's, I think there's a, a, a there's a thing such as like polite pollution, right? Where you you don't go to the truth, you skip it, and you just flood the airways with just niceties. The family's under siege. Your kids are in their schools. If you're in public schools, they're being taught that America is evil. They're being taught that that not only they themselves are racist because they're white, that their parents are racist, that their grandparents, who most likely fought in wars for this country, are evil and imperialists are imperialists. Like and on top of that, our kids can't surf the internet. And by the way, if you're an American, you're 
ancestors are here because they were victims of imperialist wars. <laughs> right? Exactly they were fleeing right. the haps. They were fleeing wars. They were fleeing oppression. I'm adding that to my my arguments here. I I, I had totally I missed. That. I mean, yeah, think about it. I mean, come yeah. on. If you're Irish, why are you here? Right. Exactly. Why did your grandma, the imperialist colonialist, come here? Right. right. Yeah, she was marching here. In an act, no. One of the best movies ever is Brooklyn. Have you seen Brooklyn yet? Yes. Oh, come oh on. yeah, it's that a great movie. So, that film is so beautiful. Yeah. So this nonsense. Yes. Yes. This but utter nonsense. We but, are under siege, though. Yes. And we have to be real about it. We have to be graphic about it sometimes, and we have to have real conversations because, you know, I, I, I tell people, you, you want to know what your kids are learning about in sex ed in school? I'll tell you. Because you probably think it's normal. It's not. It's weird. You know, in the 90s, we developed, there was a big, you know, debate over whether or not sex ed was proper for public schools. And, uh, you know, the the Planned Parenthoods had so much funding, they were able to win that fight. And and what was their mentality? Their mentality was, well, kids are going to have sex anyway. We can't stop them. They're not going to do abstinence. So let's teach them how to have sex safely without pregnancies, without sexually transmitted disease. You fast forward 30 years to today, that same mentality has been expanded to all different types of very weird stuff. Your kids are learning in in public schools. They're learning how to have safe BDSM sessions. That is nuts. No, my daughter's friend, we're, we homeschool. We homeschool for one reason mainly, to keep me out of prison. <laughs> That's, That's right. Like, we go away homeschool. Yeah, it's, it's a challenge, but it's a lot better than being behind bars for life. Yes. Um, my, but my nine-year-old said, Dad, uh, this girl in our neighborhood who's, who's nine, her friend, said that she thinks she's trans. What? You're nine. You know me enough to know that when I was nine years old, and when I tell you this, I'm telling you the truth. I knew what I was going to be. I knew what I was. I was a ninja. I was going to grow up to be a ninja, and that's what I was. You're going to go to Japan. I'm a ninja. I mean, I know that now, and I grew up. I grew up to be my job. No, yeah. No, I knew. I was going to go to Japan, and I was going to be a ninja, and uh, that's what I was thinking about. I'd watch kung fu theater and karate <laughs> movies. How are these kids sitting there? What am I? Who am I? Well, I don't even know. My question is, it's insane. We, 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 well, we know it's a lie, right? We know it's a lie because 10% of this like latest generation of kids identifies as LGBT. And a bunch of them are trans or non-binary or whatever. The question is, okay, where were all of the trans kids in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s? Because they tell us, like, oh, if we don't affirm their new gender, they're at risk of suicide. Well, mm. if you look at the numbers, the suicide, the teenage and adolescent suicide rate has gone up as we've accepted transgenderism. It hasn't, hasn't gone down. So it's all a lie. Our kids are being inundated nonstop. It's not just the schools. It's Nickelodeon. It's the Disney Channel. And there are people, and this is what I really want to stress, this is, the, this is why this group, the big family, is so important. Everyone's competing for your child's mind. Everyone's competing for your child's soul. And it's time for parents to compete twice as hard for our own kids as Nickelodeon is for our kids' minds, as these teachers' unions and these Planned Parenthood organizations and all, all of that. They want your kid's soul and mind 
and they're going to do anything they can. We have to stand up. We have to draw a line in the sand and tell them it goes no further. I love it. Have you seen this? Uh, one of my favorite motivational speeches is of this football, high school football coach. And he tells a story of a, uh, a guru, like a Kung Fu master that uh, tells this young man, he's going to train him how to be, you know, as great as him. And he says, but before I train you, you have to meet me at the beach. Have you ever seen this video? I haven't. And he, so he says, the young man meets the, uh, the master, the Kung Fu master at the beach. And he, he takes him out and he, and he takes him out into the water and he grabs the young man and he, he holds him. He just pushes him underwater and keeps him underwater till he's almost ready to drown and he's fighting for his life. And he pulls him up and he says, he says, until you want to be a success as bad as you just wanted to breathe, don't ever reach out to me again. And we need to fight for our children like that. Yes. This is what is at stake. And, um, you know, our families, our children are being savaged, brutalized, and not just physically, they're lost. They don't know who they are. They don't know what they are. They, they'll ne they're never feeling joy, never feeling hope. Sometimes I feel like they don't even feel the temptations of normal sins like right. that, have, that have addled the human family since Adam and Eve. Yep. They're, they're being dragged into some place that no one has ever been taken before. These are our children. And so I'm so grateful for what you're doing. I hope, guys, uh, I know we went, went over your time because you have somewhere to be. And I have to be, you know me when I travel, I'm going to a boxing gym right now to meet a friend. <laughs> of course. But, uh, you know, I, what, the work you're doing is the most important work on earth. You know, when nothing matters more than our, our children's peace, our children's happiness, our children's joy. And the people we're fighting aren't our enemies. These are people who are victims too. Exactly. These exactly. are people who have been shattered. They have been broken. They despair. They're lonely. We live in a, the world has never been more lonely. Uh, people are despairing. You know, our, I see your family. We see each other on social media. And, um, you know, we're blessed, brother. We are. We're rich. God is good. Our lives are filled with joy and hope. I haven't been lonely since the day I cut my boy's umbilical cord when I was 18 years old. <laughs> and, you know, it's been a struggle, but it's been a beautiful struggle. Um, you know, Terrence Malick is my favorite director. And in his film, to the wonder, he really looks at the difference between despair and suffering. And you try to avoid suffering, you end up in despair. And we have a world that with family comes challenges, yep. comes disagreements, disputes, comes suffering. Um, life is either suffering or despair, and there's no way around it. But you know, when your father was dying, you, you were suffering together. Mm -hmm. But it was a beautiful moment. Your father alone... Would have there would have been just nothing but despair. Right. And that that's the one thing I, I said earlier I was going to get back to. My dad, had he not gotten clean and rededicated himself to our family, he would have gotten that. Even if he didn't die of an overdose, he would have died of that cancer alone. Or you would have been there with no connection to your dad out yeah. of some sort of filial duty. Yeah. You'd have looked at each other like two strangers. Yeah. But because he decided to be the man that God made him to be, he had that St. Joseph happy death. It's incredible. Well, and that's what we want for everyone. Everyone. And that the family is how we get everyone to get that. And we all have big families. Yes. If you're listening, well, I only have two kids. I have no kids. I'm 50. I never got me. You've got a big family. 
You got nieces, you got aunts, you got uncles, you got cousins, you've got nephews. We are we need to knit the family. The family is not, a nuclear family is a dying family. Right. A nuclear family is what a family looks like on its way to no family. Right. Right. We we as conservatives in the eighties, like we have to fight for the nuclear family. There is no such thing as a nuclear family. That's insane. And I can tell you only doing the nuclear family route as someone that is a transplant to the DC area that doesn't have any extended family here. Yeah. It is so tough. It is so hard. You don't have a, you have to build your own like little mini network. Well, you don't have to live with your family. I mean, you know, they can be all over the world together, right? I've seen this in Hawaii with the Filipino culture. Families are so knit together, even if aunties in Saudi Arabia Uh and, and my cousins in Jordan and half my family's in the Locos Norte. And I got everyone here in Hawaii. We're still fan. You, know, you still have a family, right? Mm-hmm. And and we all have big families. We want bigger families, interconnected families, families that shelter. Our, we shelter each other from the storms of the world. Yep. And you now, we now have a we have a political voice. That's right. Give it a give it. A, give us the closing words, and then I'm going to sell pillows. <laughs> the and you were that, texting Mike Lindell right before this interview. I okay, so I did because I okay. So when you sign up to be a member, there's di- like there's different levels, okay. and we, we give you things. Um, and I I really want to have you know um, I want to offer our people on my pillow because here's the thing. Whoa, whoa, brother, you're cutting into my business. Oh no, here. okay, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> uh, but I I was like Mike, we should. Do no, my, you can offer yeah. my pillow. Uh, but um, anyway, so look. We need to get families organized and engaged in politics. The The Democrats have, uh, and the progressive left, they have taken over all of our institutions slowly, but especially politics from the school boards all the way to the presidency. And we can do this. These progressives aren't actually that smart. They're just more dedicated and they don't, they have a they lot have more, more free, free time. time. Free they time. They don't have diapers to change. That's exactly Literally. right. But Boxing guys, gyms to go to. But guys, it's not hard. You can do it, and we're going to put you in. We're going to put you to work. So the first two years, we're going to spend, you know, building the membership. We don't. Okay, go to savethefamily.app promo code Jones. You'll get ten percent off. But listen, don't just sign yourself up. Send it to your family and friends. Send it to anyone you know that is concerned about what's happening to their children. Because a lot of us don't know what to do. We're like, right, and we need to fight local. But we need to fight in Washington, D.C. too. Everything. And so we are going to train families not just on uh, how to be organized and who to vote for and what issues are at stake. We're eventually, once we build this right and get to the proper levels, we're going to train families, parents, how to run for office how to start your own local political chapters, how to get your community engaged and get the bad guys unelected. And the get broken the, guys. The broken guys. The broken, lonely guys. I shouldn't guys. say the bad guys. No, I mean, my heart breaks for them. It does. You know, and uh, like you said, they have more free time. Like, I'm about to go kayaking for a week with my boys down the Suwannee River. I yep. shouldn't say where I am. They might lurk. They might. They might lurk to ambush us. <laughs> but, you know, but what are they going to be doing? They're going to be busybodies working 16-hour days. Yep. Yep, that's right. So... We need everyone in, email it, text it. We're going to put you to work with voter contact, everything political. We are going to train families on how to do. That's what we want to do. That's what we have to do if we want to save America. But first, we have to save the family. So save the family to APP. There's a really fun video. I love it. You guys are going to be the Chip and Joanna Gaines <laughs> of the pro-family movement. What I like about it is it just shows the joy of a family. I know a lot of you, there's not a lot of joy in your family right now because it's been a rough year. 
you know, we made the decision to cut off cable news in our house uh, about a year ago. And we, and what I liked about this video is it just showed our families need to be, uh, we need to shelter. You said that your biggest fear with your kids is that their imagination is punctured. We need to create beautiful, joyful, peaceful homes for our family. But then we need to be raging and battling for our children uh, in Washington, protecting their interests while we create a beautiful, wholesome garden of love in our home and our neighborhoods. That's exactly right, Jason. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Brother, it's good seeing you. Good seeing you, And it's good to see just you and your wonderful wife, how you flourished since I first met you in uh, Des Moines, Iowa in uh, 2007. And I can't wait to see what the next 15 15 years hold. I I told you we'd be fighting together for the rest of our lives. You did, and you were right. Uh, Well, thank you, sir. Thank you, Terry Schilling. All right. This was a fun, fun interview. It is Father's Day. Or more likely, the day after Father's Day, you're in the gym or you're on the Peloton doing whatever you guys do. I get all these emails that you listen while you go for your walks, you go for your runs. For those of you who are fathers, I hope this inspired you. For all of us who are members of families, I think we need to join with APP um, uh, to make sure our values are being um, fought for in Washington, D.C. As a father, I can tell you that this year I've really recommitted myself to serving my family, protecting my family, and um, making sure I fill our world with joy, make sure my children live in a peaceful environment, and they have hope and love. So I hope you have a, had a beautiful Father's Day. Have a wonderful Father's Day. This episode, as always, has been brought to you by Movie to Movement, Divided Hearts of America, Great Father's Day movie, Bella, a Great Father's Day movie, Crescendo, more of a Mother's Day movie, but check out our movies, Voiceless. I think half my movies are Father's Day movies. Go to movie2movement.com. If you're looking for a film to watch with the family this Father's Day, check out Bella, check out Voiceless, check out Divided Hearts of America. As always, the Vulnerable People Project at thegreatcampaign.org. And you know what you need to do. You need to fill your home and your father's home with MyPillow products. Go to mypillow.com, use the code Jones, And again, go to savethefamilies.app, become a member, and if you use the code Jones, you get a membership at a discounted rate. All right, until next time, it's the Jason Jones Show. This has been the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Oh,